Thank you, Adam, so much for that, sharing that. You know, next week's a big goal for us. And uh, last year, I remember with the with the church leadership, especially the shepherds, spending many weeks praying over that $92,000 goal and then, and then exceeding it and raising $115,000. And just, you remember us flipping the cards and we flipped five cards and then uh, Kelly had somebody hidden out here. I think it was, it was a Josh or Reagan was out hidden out here in the foyer and then came up here and we had a sixth card. And it wasn't 15000 it was 115000 And I know that this last year has been such a, such a challenge, but I know that God's going to do great things. And I look forward to seeing um, how he uses this church to sin and to bless and to um, do great things. You know, I always like to try to break money down a little bit. $92,000 seems daunting. I, I can't do that alone. Uh, but, you know, the government sent me $600 for every person in my family the other day. Well, that's $2,400 I can give to missions next week. Hey, great. If 125 of us gave $600, that's $72,000. That's not that hard, is it? The government's paying for missions. That's awesome. <laughs> that's what they ought to be doing. Right? That's a way to take what maybe you don't need and then also to pull out from and sacrifice on top of that. So just be praying about that. What a blessing it is to be part of a church. And maybe just couch it in this. It's a blessing to be part of a church that can sit. Not every church can do that. Not every church can have a youth ministry, a children's ministry. Not every church can have 20-plus little kids up here singing about Jesus. And uh, we're, we're, we're so blessed, aren't we, church? Um, grab a Bible. We're going to be in the New Testament. We're going to start in Acts chapter 4 here in a little bit as we jump into week 3 of this series we've been on called Make Us One. Excited to share with you today some amazing stuff about the life of Jesus and about the call in this description that we get in Scripture, that the church was one in mind and one in heart. So all of us have done this. You probably have done this recently. You've been a part of something, and you have agreed to the terms of service. You got a new phone. You got a new. You got a new app update. You got a new computer, and that little screen pops up before you can use that app, and it says, "Do you agree to our terms of service?" And if you're like me, which I'm going to assume that almost everybody in here is like me, is you never read the terms of service. And you agree to it, right? There's good reason for that. All of us probably do that. The average terms of service that you get on a device or an app, they say takes 40 minutes to read the entire thing. That's how long they are. I wouldn't know because I'm here to confess I have never read one of them and I never will, but I will continue to agree with them so I can move on. Amen. Okay? Now, some researchers got a hold of that phenomenon, especially in our culture, in Western culture, of why we agree to something without ever understanding what we're actually agreeing to. And so they decided to run a little experiment as researchers do. So here's what they did. They came up with a fake app. They named the app Name Drop. And it was supposed to be an app used for finding a job. So you would give them your name, and this app was supposed to help you get a name drop with the company. They would drop your name with the company. And if they helped you get a job, then you had to pay for their services a little bit. Well, about 500 people downloaded it and agreed to the terms of service, but written down in there. Now, the app was all fictitious and everything about it was not real, other than lawyers helped them write this terms of service. But the experiment was, 
Can we create an app that people agree to that has ridiculous clauses in it about what people agreed to? And so the first clause that people agreed to was deep down into this terms of service, when you checked yes, you agreed to, in the follow and I don't have all the legal language, but it said, by checking agree, we agree that the National Security Agency gets all of the information I put into this app, all my locations that I go, and all my friend connections on my phone in my contact list. The NSA. 500 people in the first week downloaded this app. Can you guess how many people caught the fine print of the NSA? It's more than zero. It's one. <laughs> one out of 500 people caught it and said, hold up, I don't really want the guys that I'm already worried about listening to my phone calls knowing everything else about me, the NSA. They're scary, right? They're probably listening to us right now. Well, that was not where they stopped. They actually went a little further and they put another clause, even deeper down into it. They put a clause in that said, if the user hereby cannot pay for services rendered by NameDrop LLC and cannot pay for further services, they will hereby give up their firstborn child as payment for the services rendered by NameDrop. And only, guess how many people caught that one out of the next 1,000 people? It's more than one. It's two. 98% <laughs> of people just simply said, we agree to the terms of service. Now, there's a lot we can say about that. It's kind of humorous, kind of bizarre. But I think maybe what's most interesting about that is that we are a nation of people who will agree to terms of service wholeheartedly, without reading into it at all, with something on our phone or with anonymous companies that give us apps, while at the same time being a nation of people who cannot agree on anything else. The irony of that is delicious. We will agree to terms of service, but with real relationships, we hardly ever agree to terms of service. In here, we hardly We live in, unfortunately, what's called a post-truth world. We don't agree on what's real. We don't talk. We talk past each other. Conspiracies abound. They're no longer on the fringe of society. They're now part of everyday life. You have friends and neighbors who believe in QAnon. You have friends and neighbors who probably even believed like last week that the snow in South Texas was fake. We live in a crazy messed up place. We can't and we don't change our mind. We use our reptilian brains instead of our prefrontal logical cortex that's up there that has God has given us. And how do I know that we're this way? Because I am this way too. I do it too. It's been said that the most rare sentence in American English is four words long. It's the most rare sentence ever given. It's I'm right. I'm wrong. You're right. The most rare sentence. I'm wrong. You're right. Which if you're tracking with me, you know that this is a you probably know it and I know it, although you probably won't argue with me about it. 
But it's especially a problem that we can't agree and be one if we are people who call on the name of Jesus. If we are people who proclaim capital T truth. And we seek capital T truth. Because as people of truth, the Bible calls us again and again to be one and unified in mind and in heart. We are given through scripture terms of service that we need to agree to. See, the early Christians had, among other things, some great descriptions that are called great descriptions. One of the most compelling things I think that's said about them in scripture is that people that came from all kinds of different backgrounds, from, from Galilee and Judea and Samaria and the Gentiles and Herodians and people from Rome and the farther world, and even down into Africa, like Ethiopians in Acts chapter 8, they are all described as having one mind. So I want to look at some passages just real quick. We're going to fly through seven passages. And I want you just to see that there's not only description here, there's also encouragement here and command here to be this way. So we'll start in Acts. Acts 4.32 just follow along with me. All believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. Romans 15.5, Paul says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. In 1 Corinthians, Paul also writes, 1 in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, listen to this one, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul continues, this is a big thing for him, Ephesians 4, 23, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self. So you're putting off the things that you used to be, and then what's part of the new self? Which is that old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Same theme in Philippians chapter 2. Big theme in Philippians. Then make my joy complete by what? Being like-minded, or in Greek, one-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. And he says it again in Philippians 4, 2, with talking directly to two ladies of the church. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then our last one. Whoop, you didn't want to see that guy. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you, this command from Peter, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. So from exhortation to encouragement to command to just simple description, the disciples of Jesus are called to be of one mind. And that's, that's where we get to this big question. And it's how. So how do we do that? It's plain in Scripture. You can't get around it. Early Christians were one in heart and mind. And Paul and Peter and others go on to say, and these aren't, this isn't an exhaustive list. We are to be one. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we're to be assimilated? To be robotic? That we take on a hive mind like bees or ants? 
put our heads down. Just everybody has the exact same thoughts and attitudes and opinions and all those things. Maybe we need to be like this guy that I, that I accidentally showed the picture of. This is a naked bull rat. Man, there. The longer you look at it, the cuter they get, really. Isn't that kind of cute? Now, this is a really cool animal. I, didn't, I just learned about the naked mole rat the other day. And here, here's another picture. They're really little. They hold them up. This, this, oops, where's my other picture? Did I lose my other picture? Oh, I lost my other picture. They're really little guys. They're like this big. Well, the naked mole rat is the longest living rodent in the world. They live for 32 years. That's a long time for a rodent. I mean, that's old for a mouse or a rat or a beaver. Um, Kookaburra. I mean, that is a long-living. Long is a kookaburra a rodent? I don't know. All right, whatever. Everybody's looking around like, what's <laughs> Look it up. I don't know if it's a rodent. You can correct me later. All right? But these guys are amazing. They're, these, these little guys live underground in East Africa. They can live up to 32 years long. They're incredibly resistant to pain. We don't understand why. In fact, scientists have tried to give them cancer in all forms, and they can't get cancer. They're incredible little things. They can live on 10% of oxygen underground and not see light for a long time. But the most strange thing about them is that they are the only four-footed animal in the entire world that work like a hyphen, like bees. They serve a queen. They have one mind and one heart. Only two to three males get to mate with the queen. The rest just work. And they serve the colony. A naked mole rat doesn't hope one day to graduate high school, get a job, go and find another cute naked mole rat, move out and start another colony somewhere. They don't get that hope in their life. These guys have one mind serving one purpose. And I think that's what we often think that's what scripture means. That Paul or Peter or the Acts and Luke say about the early church that the church was of one mind, that they were like naked mole rats. Should Peter have just maybe used this? Maybe he didn't have knowledge of East African mole rats. Should he have just said, finally, all of you brothers and sisters, be like naked mole rats, agreeing on everything? Well, I think we know the answer to that. Is that what actually one? mindedness is. Of course not. It's not. You get a hundred of us in a room and there's going to be a hundred different ideas and thoughts and preferences and presuppositions. There's going to be things that we can't agree on. We can't all agree on, even in the state of Texas, that yes, beans should be put in chili. Alright? Right? Anybody with me? No. Alright, Brad's telling me no. I've seen the way you cook, Brad. I don't want to eat your food. All right, although it's really good. All right. We can all agree, right, that mountains are a far better vacation spot than a beach. Amen. Amen. Say some amens, right? Right. Well, we can't agree on all those things. We can't. Now, the word for mind used in Greek here is multiple. There's actually four or five different words for mind. Words that range in meaning. There's many of words. The words range in meaning from thoughts and understanding. Even there's a word about mind that has more to do with your soul than what's between your ears. There's a word in Greek that has to do with your mind being your opinion of yourself, or reasoning and consideration. But here's what they all have in common. When the New Testament writers talk about being one in mind, they all have in common direction. 
that your mind is moving towards an attitude. And so what this is probably actually meaning is more than being like a hive or an ant den. He is meaning the New Testament writers are saying direct, take your mind towards Christ. Be a people who bring your mind inside the will of Jesus so that others around you can be one in mind with you. But still that doesn't answer the how, does it? In a world of disagreement, that's still just theory. Well, we need to be a one in mind, so we just need to have all the same attitude. Well, okay, my attitude stinks sometimes. How about yours? Right? My dad used to tell me, you need an attitude adjustment. He'd kind of do this. I don't know what that meant. <laughs> Actually, I do know what that meant. It usually hurts. <laughs> we all need some attitude so it really doesn't answer just to say, yeah, there's scripture, do it, right? It does, but it doesn't. What we need to know is what scripture is actually getting at. So how do we once again bring about one-mindedness to the church? The church family, I want to. I want to be one in mind and heart with you. Not because you think and act and have preferences like Jake. But because we are of one attitude and an attitude that matches that of Jesus Christ. Amen. So how do we want to explore this? How do we find how to do this? And this is where we're going to get practical. And we're going to start where, of course, we should, talking about Caesar's comment. Right? Didn't you guys follow that? You're with me on that? Even somebody was like, oh, I know where Jake's going. He's going to talk about Caesar's comment. Right? I'm glad if you were with me. So let's talk about Caesar's comment. And then we're gonna, I'm going to tell you a story. It comes from Julius Caesar, and then we're just going to follow it up with Scripture. And there's a little test for you to see if you can see what the New Testament writers are doing. So this is decades before the time of Jesus. Decades before the time of, C uh, of Jesus, and Caesar is on the scene. And the main Caesar, the big-time Caesar, the first Caesar in the Roman Empire is, of course, Julius Caesar. And what do we know about Julius Caesar? We know he's assassinated, right? If you studied uh, sophomore uh, literature, as I did in high school, you remember, beware the Ides of March and A2 Brute, right? right? Anybody with me? Can you show of hands? Yeah. All right. Okay, thank you, Texans. All right, I thought we were better than Oklahomans. I guess not. All right, Hooker, Oklahoma taught me that. A2 Brute. All right, anyway, shut up, Jake. All right. So Caesar comes along. And this is the way the story goes, according to Roman history. Before he dies, he knows he's going to die without an heir, Julius Caesar. And so, knowing that he's going to die without an heir, he decides that he's going to adopt his youngest grandnephew, Octavian. And by adopting Octavian, he makes Octavian next in line to be the emperor. Then, of course, Brutus and the other senators assassinate him in the Senate one day. When he's assassinated, there is a vacuum of power in the Roman Empire. In fact, it almost leads to another civil war, which is what happened before Julius Caesar. On one side of the vacuum of power, you have a guy who's married to Cleopatra named Mark Antony. And he is super powerful. He's commanded thousands upon thousands of troops. 
He, he is charismatic. He is mighty. He has experience. He knows how to run Rome. He's been a big dog in Rome for years. Problem is, nobody really likes him. His, his popularity rate is pretty low. In fact, among the Senate, nobody likes him either. Then on the other side, you have this nephew, Octavian, who later becomes Augustus. He is very charismatic. People love him. People love his attitude and the way that he speaks. But his problem is he hasn't commanded troops. And he's very, very young. So this back and forth political movement goes on in the Roman Empire. This political struggle ensues. But then this happens. According to the legend, and this is all true, you can look this up. In time, a comet appears. A normal comet. They fly around the sun every 70, 80 years, you know, we see them. Hellbop or Haley's. I don't know which comet this was. It's now known as Caesar's comet. But all people of Rome see this comet. And Octavius jumps at the opportunity. He jumps at the opportunity and he begins to tell this story that the light you saw in the sky, which was as bright in the night sky with the tail behind it, you could see it with the naked eye, it was as bright as Venus on the horizon. And he begins to tell people, that was my uncle, the emperor, Julius Caesar, rising in the pantheon to become the most high God. And because he has risen among the stars and among the other gods, I am the Son of God, and I will take the throne on earth. That's the story he told. The senators then jump on that story. They jump right on it, and they say, yes, that is true. Everything Octavius said is true. And not only that, we went to the top of Capitol Hill. That's an important hill. It's where they began to later crown Caesars. In fact, where Augustus or Octavian will be crowned not long after this story begins to spread. He said they went to the top of the hill when the comet passed by and Julius spoke to them. And here's what Julius said to them. As the, as the comet went by, they heard a word from this Most High Julius and Julius said to them, you will be my prophets and my witnesses to take Rome and the power of Rome into the ends of the earth. And I'll give you one guess, church family, how many senators were on top of the Roman capital being Twelve. Anybody with me? So, decades later, Luke writes this. Acts chapter 1, 6-11. The ascension of Jesus. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood behind them, beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that he has gone, that you've seen him go into heaven. Now, are you with me? This is an incredible, incredible thing the New Testament is saying. What's Jesus up to? What's Luke trying to get us to see in this telling? We don't talk much about the ascension of Jesus. Here's what he's trying to say. The ancient world existed as a battle between two empires, Rome and the rest of the world. And they all, the whole world, believed in this story that Julius did see a common. And then Rome spread around the world because 12 disciples of Rome said to the world, hey, we've all got to serve the Roman thing and be witnesses to the ends of the earth and spread Rome all around the world. Then Jesus, in his last moment on earth, reverses the story. The whole claim of Julius Caesar and Octavius and Augustus was this. Caesar divinity. Caesar is Lord. But Jesus comes along and makes a new claim. And they almost tell the story exactly the same. Because what they're doing is subverting the empire. A claim that says, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. That is what brings us oneness in mind. Because when we are one in mind, it's because we're one in message. To be one in mind is to be one in message. What united the early church was a proclamation that Rome is not Lord. Jesus is. This is the message that we still build our lives on, that we center our lives around the claim of Jesus, that the risen and once crucified Son of God, that He is Lord and there is no other. Luke writes the book of Acts this way on purpose. Now that may have shocked some of y'all. What, what's he doing? Is he just is he stealing from Caesar? No, he isn't stealing the Caesar story. He's borrowing it to say, here's what you think. Who did Luke write to? You guys know who Luke was written to? Luke and Acts, Gentiles. Not Jews, it's written to Gentiles. So why is he write this way? To show them a different way of living. It's to confront the kingdom of empire with the kingdom of peace, with the kingdom of Jesus, with the kingdom of redemption and servanthood. A kingdom that is in this world, but not from this world. And this church is how we find ourselves one in mind. We have one message. A message when you boil it all down. The gospel is simply three words. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Of course you're not going to put 300 or 200 or even 100 or even 20 people in a room and get them to agree on everything. They can't be one in mind and every thought and idea and preference. And we shouldn't even be aiming at that. It's silly when churches do that. Churches, when they aim at being one in mind and every preference, end up pushing more people away than ever. But when people aim to be on the same message, we draw people together. Shared preference does not change the world. Shared message does. Amen. It changes the world. If Jesus is Lord, then I can unite with you because you and I 
realize that no one else is. If Jesus is Lord, no one else is. The church, early church, people that first Peter is writing to, Ephesians and Philippians, they're not in one in mind because they saw everything the same like mindless drones or naked bullets. They're one in mind because they have shared message. Church, there's such power in there. There's power in learning to let go of what I prefer so somebody else can have what they need. Do you hear me? I know some of you disagree with that. But you can't tell me the early church was one in everything because you haven't read the book of Acts. <coughs> Acts is a mess. Was it a perfect church with no problems? Acts was a group of people who were trying to figure it out. How do we include people? How do we get these Gentiles to be part of this thing? What do we do with the Jewish message? What do we do with the Jewish traditions? And you know how they got along? Jesus is Lord. When we center our lives around Jesus as the cornerstone of our faith, built on the foundation of the apostles, an inherited message, and that works into our lives, then what do we become? When my attitude of my mind is shifted towards and moving in directions toward Jesus, I become like Jesus. I become a servant. Jesus becomes my Lord. And then with you and you with me, we can share in that Lordship together serving each other, helping each other become more like Jesus. This doesn't water down the gospel, this makes it stronger. It makes it stronger. Because then I have an impetus not to make you like me, but to help you be like Jesus. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> That's our goal. I'll just ignore it too. <laughs> you may have seen this well, my picture's not up there. I'll just move on. I'll skip it. All right. I don't know what happened to my pictures. All right. Mine, also, our second thing I want to get into is this. Is it's not all just to say that we have Jesus as Lord. The second thing we need to do is to be a people of one mind is mine takes me on. And I want to show you this. Here's the Shema. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the prayer that is so important to Israelites. It says, hear, or Shema, listen, O Israel. Shema, uh, Yod Israel, Elohim, uh, no, I can't, I can't, that's all I've been uh, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, I want you to notice something here. This is the most important prayer to all Israelites, ancient and current. Anybody who practices the Jewish faith, it's still prayed twice a day by practicing Jews morning and evening. Shema lo Israel, Adonai Eheinu, Adonai Echad. The Shema is Jesus' most important prayer, but it's also his most important command. He takes the Shema when he's asked what's about what's most important and turns it into Christians as the great command. But I want you to notice this here. In Deuteronomy, I want you to notice the difference between what he does in Mark. 
So Deuteronomy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. But when Jesus quotes the Shema, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So there's a little subtle difference there. Did you notice that Deuteronomy, the command is three, heart, soul, and strength. But in Mark, Jesus throws in a fourth word, love the Lord your God with your mind. Well, the answer, if you're wondering, if you're asking, well, why did Jesus do it? Is he changing scripture? What's he trying to do? The answer is meal. The answer is this really cool word. There's this Hebrew word in Deuteronomy that we translate as strength that is the word meal. But the word doesn't actually mean strength. It's one of those Hebrew words that we don't know how to translate. In fact, the only time that anybody ever translates miad as strength in the Old Testament is one time, and it's in the Shema. Nowhere else, and it appears many, many times in Scripture, is the word ever translated as strength. It just fits there. doesn't mean it's wrong to be strength, but it doesn't actually capture it. The word here actually means very, or your muchness. That's what the word actually literally means. It means to do something with your muchness. So Deuteronomy, the Shema's say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your variedness. Or with all your muchness. Y'all with me? That's such a cool word, right? It appears in other places like this. Like Genesis 1.31, where God looks on creation and he says, It was beyond good. It was very good. Right? Or in 1 Samuel 11.15, when Saul becomes king, it says that Saul was miad happy. He was much happy. He was very happy. It's moy moy, moy moy in Spanish, right? Moy moy, right? Um, miad is not even a noun. It's an adverb. It's a word used to say with intensity do this. So the Shema is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with your mm, with your passion, with your chutzpah. <laughs> Bring it with your strength, with your muchness. That's weird, isn't it? It's weird to say that. Love the Lord God with your very Rick. You know? But that's weird. But you get it, don't you? Miad is about your total capacity. With all that you've got. It's a word that's unlimited. It's a word that says you can be joyful, but you can be miad joyful. Very joyful. You can be wise, but somebody can be what? Very wise. Somebody can be happy, but other people can be very happy. Somebody can be loving, other people can be meod loving. I can be compassionate, but you can be very compassionate. See, so you get it. See, what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's actually interpreting meod. And this is why we need meod for oneness. Is Jesus is saying, love God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, body, strength, all you've got. Bring your very, bring your muchness, bring your all to your love of God. Bring it. Tim Bannon lives in Hillside, Illinois. He's a teen. He's about 16 now. Hillside's just out of Chicago. He's this incredible 14-year-old. He's, he's driven uh, when he was 14, the video I'm about to show you. But just like his mom, um, Tim Bannon was born without arms and really even shoulder joints. So he's faced his share of struggles and pain and difficulties. 
when he was 12, he started to work on this, getting his body strong. Started working on leg strength, core. One of his goals that he had for his life is he wanted to be able to swim and bike and run and complete a short triathlon. So several months ago, there was this big goal that he needed to get in front of him that for a lot of us would be no problem. He wanted to complete a 20-inch box jump without arms. Now you gotta, you kind of got to get that in your head. You'll see the video here in just a second. For you and I, no big deal. Jumping without the aid of balance is like stepping out of an airplane without a parachute. If you fall without arms, your face is the only thing you have to catch. And I want you to see his attempt. Because I think what Tim shows us is Meod. And what the people around him show is Meod. Here he is. satisfied with a church that is full right now? I'm not satisfied with this. I want to be one with everybody in Canadian. I want to be one with everybody that's my neighbor. I want to be one with them, not because we share everything in common as far as preferences and who we root for and all that. Everybody can be wrong. The right team to root for is Oklahoma State. We know that. We know that. I know that. Nobody else knows that. Right? We're not going to be one of those things. But my neighbors across the street and my neighbors that you guys work with and the people that we love in this town, 
we can share with them there is a Lord, there is no other. His name is Jesus. Amen. But we will not get there unless we find Miyad. Miyad. And guess what? Jake isn't here to give you Miyad. I am not your source for Miyad. I am not your source to inspire you because my sermons get better or worse. You're going to think what you want to think about Sunday mornings. But you can be partnered with each other in the gospel when you say, I am all in. Not when church goes the way I want. Not when things just are kind of going this way. I am all in because Jesus was all in for me. That's what makes us one. The early church thrived. They were one in mind and heart. They were together. Because they were like Tim's coaches. You can do this. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. So we're going to cheer on people that are struggling. We're going to cheer on this town as we get out of a bad time. We're going to cheer on this town as we struggle through down economy. We're going to cheer on people that have lost jobs and people that have lost loved ones. We're going to get beside them and we're going to give God all our heart, soul, and me on so that more people can come to know Jesus as Lord. I hope you're with me. Yeah. And if you're not, go somewhere else. <laughs> you think I'm joking? We, I am not going to waste my life waiting for eternity and not bringing more people with us. Amen? Yeah. Now I say that funny. Man, you're mean, Jake. I am not going to waste my life. I had a heart attack at age 38. I'm not going to live that. I'm not going to waste my life. And, the, and we've already wasted a year. And I'm tired of it. Let's get after it and let's serve Jesus. Is that enough coach speech for you? Let's stay in a second. All right. <laughs>